Now, when you book your tours on recreation.gov, make sure and read all the fine print because there are some more strenuous tours where there is an age limit for how old kids have to be to go on that particular tour. Age limit, as in like if you're too old to go on it? There is an age minimum. Oh, okay. There's no <laughs> maximum age, is there? Uh, no. I mean, they, they let us go, so... <laughs> They yeah, didn't check well, our ID. Yeah. They let me right through. They, I did see the Rangers talking amongst themselves. Remember when they held you at the gate for a minute? This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today we're going underground, featuring two South Dakota caves that are in the National Park System, Jewel Cave National Monument and Wind Cave National Park. Located just 20 minutes away from each other in the Black Hills, these two caves are completely different. One features the world's largest concentration of rare boxwork formations, and one glitters and sparkles with calcite crystals. We'll talk about what makes each cave unique, how they were discovered and developed more than 100 years ago, and some important things to know before you go. Thanks for joining us today as we dive into the fascinating underworld of Jewel and Wind Caves. just had a chance to go back and visit Wind Cave again a few weeks ago after a 12-year absence. (laughs) How is that even possible? Yeah, it doesn't (laughs) seem that long, does it? It really doesn't. Um, And we visited Jewel Cave National Monument last summer, so we thought this would be a good time to compare and contrast the two cave parks uh, that are so close to each other. Yeah, we were focused so much on Wind Cave at the beginning because it was a national park, And people had, over the years, told us how incredible Jewel Cave is. Eventually, we just thought, gosh, we keep getting so many suggestions to go visit that, that we finally did it last year. Yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. And I have to say, it is every bit as beautiful and as worth a visit as Wind Cave is. But we do get a lot of questions from people about if they only have time to do one cave tour, which would we recommend, Jewel Cave or Wind Cave? So we're going to talk about these caves as we said in the intro, some of the differences. And at the end, we can do a quick summary of you know our thoughts on these caves. Yeah, I don't think you can go wrong choosing either one of them. Sometimes it might just come down to which did you have a chance to get a reservation for? Well, that's a good point because those do go really quickly. Yeah, so we'll describe the two caves and you can decide for yourself. They're both fantastic places to visit. So as far as the location now, a lot of people are headed to the Black Hills for their vacations because there are so many incredible national park sites. And of course, you've got Custer State Park right there. Jewel Cave and Wind Cave are separated by less than 20 miles as the crow flies. Jewel Cave is about 12 miles west of the town of Custer, and Wind Cave is about 20 miles southeast of Custer. Yeah, and Jewel Cave is recognized as the world's third longest cave. So currently, or at least in January of 2023, 
it was measured at 217.32 miles, <laughs> not 0.31 miles, 0.32 miles. I love how specific they are. And Wind Cave is the world's sixth longest cave. And Wind Cave has about 164.47 miles charted. And that is the latest figure we got straight from an expert at Wind Cave. Yes, I'm glad this podcast uses uh, the second decimal point for all of its measurements. Well, we have to be precise, don't we? We do, yeah. (laughs) Now, the thing is, though, this number changes all the time because cave explorers are still discovering and surveying new passageways. So the length changes. And in a few months, there could be a few more miles charted on either cave, and they might, it might change their ranking as well. Oh, I definitely think it will. There's no way that they've found it all and explored it all. Well, they know that they haven't found all of the passages. Uh, Mammoth Cave, for instance, in Kentucky, it's the longest cave in the world at 426 miles. And that was from eight months ago. But they believe that there's a potential for 600 more miles in that cave that, that has yet to be discovered. Right. And that one is the longest cave in the world by far. The second longest cave doesn't even come close. It's in Mexico, and it has about 234 miles of surveyed passageways. Of course, I've had this question for years. Given the proximity of Wind Cave and Jewel Cave, what are the chances that they're connected? I think they might be connected. You know, there is the possibility. Now, I looked this up, and for years, a German researcher has been using ultrasonic anemometers to measure airflow, both in and out of Jewel and Wind Cave. And with those measurements, he has calculated the volume of the caves. And the calculations indicate that only about 3% of Jewel Cave's passageways have been explored, and only about 10% of Wind Cave has been uh, surveyed and mapped so far. Yeah, so there, there's potential for a lot more cave area down there that they haven't explored. And just to note, when we say that a cave is 100 miles long or 400 miles long, what that means is that's the length of all the passages. And those, you know, they all curve back on each other and it, it's not one straight line. So it's not like this cave goes for you know, a hundred miles in one direction. They told us when we did the tour of Wind Cave recently that the cave is, at least what they've explored so far, is in a one square mile area. So even though it's one square mile, it's what, over a hundred miles of passages. Right. And it's interesting because when you look at the map of Wind Cave, of the cave itself, there are all these intersecting lines that seem seem to look right on top of each other. So, you know, there are obviously different levels of the cave. Now, the problem with mapping the entire cave length is that volunteers can only explore about two to three miles per year. I'm sure that's a lot when you're down there. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Yes. But they think that a lot of the passageways that allow for airflow to come in and out would most likely be too small, too tight for a human to crawl through. So that's one of the issues. Yeah, that's why I'm never going on a belly crawling cave tour. I'm not sure my belly would make it back out. (laughs) I think if you want to go on any of those um, belly crawling tours, you actually have to fit through 
they have like an opening in the visitor center that you have to squeeze your body through to prove that you can get through. It's like like the thing they have at the airport. Your, your bag has to fit in this spot. Right, right. Maybe next time we're there, we should try it out and see if we can fit through it. I'd be curious okay. to know. Right. I, will, I will videotape you doing that. All right. Sounds yeah. good. Now, the other issue is that even though the caves are less than 20 miles apart as the crow flies, and that sounds fairly close, the issue is that, as you said, Matt, Wind Cave fits under one square mile of land surface, and Jewel Cave fits under barely three miles of land surface. So they're actually not very close to each other. And for cavers, just to get to the far ends of the already explored passageways, it takes about eight hours. And Jewel Cave is even longer. So physically, they're going to need more cave entrances in between those two caves if they're ever going to push that far. Yeah, it's hard to imagine what cave explorers are dealing with in the unexplored passageways. Not only is it dark, there are obstacles everywhere. There's huge boulders you have to climb over. There's drops and there's climbs that require ropes, slippery surfaces. Yeah, I would imagine it would be really tough to break through and connect those two caves by passageway. But, you know, who knows? Yeah, who knows? All right. So let's talk about the cave tours. All right. How about we go over some of the information that applies to both caves? Well, for starters, to go down into either cave, you have to join a ranger-led tour. There are no self-guided tours. They don't want people down there wandering around on their own. Oh, they don't do that? They They do not do that. (laughs) (laughs) That would be kind of fun if they did allow that. Mm -hmm. There'd be a lot of search and rescue going on. Be a person with one of those clickers. As you go in, they just click the number of people. And at the end of the day, it's like, where are we at? Five people haven't come out. It was interesting because when we just did Wind Cave, there was this one room we went into and the ranger was bringing up the rear. So he told those of us in front, he said, you're going to see a lot of other cave openings that branch out into other passageways. Do not go into any of those or we'll never find you again. Stay in the big room until I get there. (laughs) Well, but and also when you're in a cave, you don't know which is the you know, right direction to go. So Sure. All right. So you absolutely want to buy your cave tour tickets ahead of time and they are sold on, guess what, recreation.gov. When you go to that page, you can see what types of tours are available for the day that you're going to be there. Now, the tours vary by month and by day. Typically, the summertime is the most busy and that's when they offer the most tours. Some tour tickets are held in reserve for same-day sales at the visitor center, but we have been there at times uh, early in the morning, and people do line up before the doors open to get those day-of tickets. Uh, Sometimes those sell out very, very quickly. Other times, I think they last until mid-morning, but it's pretty popular. So if you are counting on buying a ticket same day, you really want to get there early. Yes, absolutely you do. So you're not disappointed. 
And a couple of rules we'll just say quickly. These apply to both caves. You cannot bring backpacks, purses, or bags of any kind with you. You cannot wear sandals, flip-flops, or open-toed shoes. And of course, you can't bring food or water or gum. No gum? No gum. What if you have like a Jolly Rancher in your nope, mouth? You nope. Can't, you can't do that? <laughs> Nothing. Not, not even a, a thin mint. Not even a mint. Okay. You also cannot take hiking sticks, trekking poles, any kind of walking poles. You can't take tripods or selfie sticks. Those are not allowed. But you do want to bring a jacket or a sweater because in the caves, well, Jewel Cave, for instance, is pretty consistently around 49 to 50 degrees. Wind Cave's a little bit warmer, but still in the mid-50s. So it's a little cool down there all year round, which is great when it's the middle of the summer and it's super hot on the surface. It's kind of like being in air conditioning (laughs) during the tour. It is. It's kind of nice, actually, in the summertime. And the ranger told us that even though these rules are on the recreation.gov website and they're posted inside the visitor center, um, people still show up for the tour at the appointed time with their purses or backpacks or wearing sandals. Then they have to send those people back to their car um, and hold up the tour. So just know the rules before you go. Yeah, I had a Jolly Rancher in my mouth. <laughs> no, you did. I, I had to finish it off pretty quick before we <laughs> got into the cave. All right, so we toured Jewel Cave last summer, midsummer 2022, and we did the scenic tour, which is considered a modern day walking tour. It's it has a paved trail, electric lighting. It enters and leaves. Uh, by an, an elevator that that comes down from the visitor center. And the scenic tour, it's considered moderately strenuous. It lasts about an hour and 20 minutes. I would say it's less than moderately strenuous. I agree. Now, it does involve walking up and down about 734 stairs. About. How, <laughs> Stair steps. 734.23 <laughs> stairs. Right. And it's a, about a half a mile loop. During this scenic tour, you'll see two types of calcite crystals known as nailhead spar and dog poos. And dog. dog poop, dog, dog poop. There's, <laughs> there's, there's dog poop formation. It sounds really attractive, yeah. doesn't it? Dog tooth spar. And those are considered the jewels of Jewel Cave. Yeah, you can also see some cave popcorn, flowstones, stalactites, stalagmites, and a long ribbon drapery called cave bacon. I loved the cave bacon. It actually looks like bacon. It does. I, I'm a little concerned that you, you, you're starting to put a lot of geology in your outline, oh. Karen. Um, <laughs> geology that's that's probably best saved for the geology segment. Of, oh, is there going to be a the, geology I, I segment? Okay. And then when we went to Wind Cave, we did the natural entrance tour. Now, because we went in May, and I don't think the summer season had officially started, that was the only tour that they did on the day we were there. But we enjoyed it very much. It's actually the same one we did when we visited 12 years ago. You go in through the natural cave entrance, and then you walk down, gosh, about 300 stairs. Well, it's not the official natural entrance. 
the original natural entrance is pretty small. It's about 10 to 12 inches wide, but it's it's right next to the site where the natural entrance was originally discovered. And it's hard to believe that the first explorers of Wind Cave used that tiny natural entrance to squeeze through. Between 1892 and 1894, a new passage was created by blasting in order to allow easier visitor access with another entrance blasted in 1936 by the CCC. So it's called the natural entrance tour, but you're not squeezing through that original natural entrance. Yeah, and I wonder why they call it the natural entrance, because you're right. This was a man-made entrance, not a natural entrance. But you know what? They never asked our opinion when they named it. Still, nobody's asking our opinion. (laughs) Right. And of course, you'll see the box work along the tour that this um, cave is famous for. But yeah, this this is also considered moderately strenuous, I think just because of the stairs. It's about a two-thirds of a mile tour, and it lasts about, oh, and gosh, an hour and 15 minutes or so. Hour and 15.23 minutes. Right. (laughs) It does say it's good for families. Now, when you book your tours on recreation.gov, make sure and read all the fine print because there are some more strenuous tours where there is an age limit for, you know, how old kids have to be to go on that particular tour. Age limit? As in, like, if you're too old to go on it? There is an age minimum. Oh, okay. You have to have a minimum amount of age. Right. (laughs) (laughs) There's no maximum age, is there? Uh, no. I mean, they they let us go, so <laughs> they yeah, didn't check well, our ID. Yeah. They let me right through. They, I did see the Rangers talking amongst themselves. Remember when they held you at the gate for a minute? <laughs> All right, I'll say one more thing because you all are our friends, but we always have this debate, Matt and I, when we're waiting to do a cave tour. If we want to be in the very front of the cave tour, like behind the ranger, or if we want to be in the very back. And so we look at the crowd, we debate, which one do we want? Which one do we want? I got to say, usually (laughs) I'm the one who like overthinks everything. This has become a thing with you. I no longer care. I know. This is something you could think about ahead of time. But you always save it until the last minute and then you panic. Well, you know why? Because there are pros and cons to either position, right? I think the con of being at the end is that you have to wait for all the people in the tour to descend like the 300 step staircase, which, you know, it's steep, it's dark, it's everything is damp. It takes a while. However, I will say that on the Jewel Cave tour, before we started, the ranger said, I need a volunteer to be the caboose, somebody who will make sure that you know, everyone's accounted for and if doors have to be closed and things. And so I raised my hand and I was the caboose. You you like being the caboose. (laughs) And then at every stop, she would yell out, Karen, are you there? Do we have everybody? I I, I felt kind of, you know, somewhat important. I felt like, I don't know, like an assistant ranger, like, like maybe I should have had a uniform. (laughs) Were you off duty? Were you an off duty assistant ranger? Well, I had responsibility, so I guess, no, I wasn't off duty. I was in charge of keeping everybody safe, like nobody would wander off and get lost. I felt like that was a lot of responsibility. (laughs) A lot of responsibility (laughs) that they didn't give you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I just thought I would share that. Okay. Well, that's not all we have to say about the caves, Karen. No, it's not. We have a lot more good stuff coming up. You know what it's time for? Uh, do you have a pop quiz for me? 
Well, no, it's time for a new segment that I'm calling Geology Land. It's kind of a pun. Did you get it? <laughs> I got it, but you can't use my music. That's History Channel music. Oh, I checked, and I couldn't find that History Channel had any copyright for that music. So, All right, what do you have for us, Matt? <laughs> Looking forward to this. Okay, so let's talk about the geology of Wind Cave. Okay. Did you know that Wind Cave was formed about 320 million years ago in the Paleozoic era? So what happened, Karen? The area where both Wind Cave and Jewel Cave are today used to be an ocean, a sea. Yeah, sea creatures lived there, and they lived there long enough that their dead bodies built up at the bottom of the ocean, and those that material over time creates what kind of rock? Asphalt. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you are correct. Asphalt or... Sometimes we call it limestone. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's a pretty thick layer of limestone after the ancient sea recedes. And then what happened in that area over time, water eroded away parts of the limestone, slightly acidic water that is, created cracks in the limestone, seeped down through and dissolved some of the limestone, carved the cave areas below. So that's how Wind Cave was formed. Jewel Cave was formed in a very similar fashion. Okay. All right. So now if you go down into the caves, you see all of these speleothems. You know what a speleothem is, Karen? Yes. Could you name a few speleothems? Stalactite. Stalagmite. Very, very good. For instance, Wind Cave is most famous for its box work. The cave contains a whopping 95% of all the discovered box work in the world. How is it formed, you ask? I was just about to ask that. Well, most cave formations are formed by water dripping down into passages, but box work is made of these thin blades of calcite that stick out from the walls and the ceilings of the caves. The dissolved calcium carbonate crystallized in the cracks of the surrounding rock, but when the rock then eroded, the calcite crystals remained, forming this box-like honeycomb pattern. Yeah, it's very intricate and very interesting. I thought it looked a little like a um, like a spider web or a cobweb or honeycomb. I, I'd go with honeycomb yeah, also. I would go with honeycomb. Okay. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's leave the spiders out of it. Okay. <laughs> and so that's like the main thing that you're, you're going to see inside Wind Cave. But they also have a couple of other formations. They have frost work. Kind of looks like frost. It kind of looks like large snowflakes or little tiny delicate crystals. So that's one. And the other, which I think this may, may be my favorite speleothem, are cave pearls. Now, oh, we yeah. did not see any cave pearls on our tour, but I guess they're in Wind Cave somewhere. We've seen them in Carlsbad Caverns. And this is cool because cave pearls are formed when like drops of water hit a pool of water over a long enough period of time, the little tiny bit of current that that creates causes these minerals to swirl and essentially accumulate in these little tiny rocks. Wow, that is pretty interesting. Yeah, and so you can find cave pearls both in Wind Cave and in Jewel Cave. Well, and as the ranger pointed out, depending on what level of the cave you're on, 
the depth of the cave, there are different types of formations, right? Yeah, that's right. And of course, when we did the tour of, of Wind Cave, we toured just a very small part of the cave. Right. Uh, but we did see uh, great examples of the box work. Now, there aren't many stalactites and stalagmites in Wind Cave because, in general, the area where Wind Cave was formed was drier over the subsequent years than in Jewel Cave. And the limestone bed is thinner, sandier, and more fractured than the one in which Jewel Cave was formed. So there you go. There's a little geology of uh, Wind Cave. Okay. What about Jewel Cave? Uh, Jewel Cave's very similar, formed in a similar way, although... There are more underground drainage systems in Jewel Cave because there was more water that not only dissolved the limestone, but also erosion was caused by the water and it carried the, the limestone away. So because it was wetter after the caves were formed, you're getting a lot more cave formations. So there was a lot more water that was dripping through the caves over the years. And that's what creates them, is that, the that, water dripping. That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. You're getting, like, the cave bacon that you talked yes, about. Yes, um, There's no one thing that's considered a jewel. It's kind of a, a, a colloquial term for, like, all the sparkly things you'll see in the caves. But, yeah, like the dogtooth spar, which got its name because the crystals resemble a dog's teeth. So Jewel Cave overall is, I think, prettier in terms of the formations, sparklier, more glittery, right? This, these calcite crystals. It has a lot more variety of mm -hmm. these formations. Mm -hmm. And at one point in Jewel Cave's geological history, the walls and ceilings were 100% covered in calcite crystals. You know, one big difference that uh, I think people notice now, again, it might depend on the tours that you do. But as far as the tours we did, I think Wind Cave was definitely more enclosed. And it felt like we were kind of hiking in a slot canyon. The passages were narrow. And a lot of times we had to duck our heads. Um, but the cave tour that we did in Jewel Cave was much, much more open. Yeah. And that probably also has to do with the fact that it was wetter there and there was just more water causing creating those openings in mm -hmm. the limestone below ground it was more open definitely in, at least in the areas that we toured okay thank you for that fascinating geology channel matt that was very very good geology land oh, sorry <laughs> geology land this episode is sponsored in part by rumple Rumpel is introducing the world to better blankets with their full line of durable, premium, ultra-warm outdoor blankets and gear. We never leave home without them. The original puffy blanket is made using recycled polyester and insulation that packs down small in its own bag for easy storage and grab-and-go adventures. I like them because Rumpel pairs durable 20D ripstop nylon with a DWR finish that's water, stain, and odor-resistant. But when you do spill coffee on yours, I can throw it in the washing machine when we get home, and it's good as new. Rumpel blankets are the best way to stay cozy and warm on any adventure. Whether you're traveling across the country or picnicking at your local park, Rumpel has you covered. Literally. Shop their line of over 140 prints and designs, including their National Park Collection, at rumpel.com forward slash Bob and Sue. And use the code Bob and Sue for 10% off your first order. That's R-U-M-P-L dot com slash Bob and Sue. 
I do want to I do want to spend some time talking about the history of this area because it is so fascinating. Even more fascinating than the geology? Maybe just a little bit. All right. What do you got for us? Okay. I broke this down because we're talking about two caves, but they're in the same area. I created a general timeline overview of what was going on in the area. Okay. Where are you starting this timeline? The written history of these caves usually starts in 1881 when they were discovered by non-Native Americans. But of course, Indian tribes lived in this area for thousands of years before then. So I wanted to mention briefly what was going on in the Black Hills in the years leading up to the discovery of the caves. In 1868, the Treaty of Fort Laramie was signed, in which the U.S. government promised the Plains Indian tribes a huge swath of land known as the Great Sioux Reservation. This area covered about half of what is now South Dakota, the western half, a big chunk of Wyoming and Nebraska, and even a little bit up into North Dakota. Uh, But it also designated the Black Hills area as unceded Indian territory for the exclusive use of Native people. However, gold was discovered in 1874 near present-day Custer, and by 1876, thousands of prospectors descended on the new town of Deadwood, where larger gold deposits had been found, even though this was within the Great Sioux Reservation. The U.S. government reneged on the agreement, they redrew the boundaries of the treaty, and they confined the Sioux people to much smaller and scattered reservations. So before Wind Cave was discovered, so to speak, in 1881, Native Americans lived in that area. And there are teepee rings near the natural entrance of Wind Cave that indicate not only did they know about the cave, but they lived close to it. Wind Cave was, and still is, a very sacred place to Native Americans, but it's doubtful they ever entered the cave. In 1881, it was discovered by non-Native people. Tom and Jesse Bingham take credit for discovering the cave. They were drawn to a small hole in the ground because of a loud whistling noise and a lot of wind. Yeah, the wind going in and out of the cave is caused by a difference in air pressure between the inside and the outside. That's how Wind Cave got its name. And it's a good thing they discovered it when the air was blowing out. If the air pressure were different, if it were lower in the cave that day when they came through, uh, it would be called Suck Cave <laughs> National Park because it'd be a suck hole, not a not a blowhole. Suck Cave National Park you doesn't really so? doesn't really have a ring to it. All right, so in 1881, Charles Crary of Custer, South Dakota, is credited with being the first person to enter the cave. He squeezed through that small natural entrance, and he became the cave's first known explorer. He used candles for light and string to mark his route, and he and his friends scrambled on their hands and knees into the darkness. You know what's interesting about that, Matt? Well, a lot of things are interesting, but as we know, to get down into the cave, we had to go down 300 steps, which of course weren't there at the time. So I'm guessing, I couldn't really find anything, but I'm guessing they had to lower themselves with rope down into the cave. You would think as dark as it is down there, and I know that they had like lanterns and candles and stuff like that, but man, one one wrong step and you could drop off 100 feet if you'd didn't know what was right below you. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what would cause people in the olden day to go into these caves and look around. 
Well, as we've said before, people back then seemed much hardier and more adventurous than the likes of us. All right. In 1889, the South Dakota Mining Company established mineral claims on Wind Cave. They were hoping, of course, that there would be something something of value down in there, some kind of minerals that they could mine and sell. And they hired J.D. McDonald as the manager of Wind Cave. So he moved from Iowa to Hot Springs, South Dakota, with his two sons, Elmer and Alvin, and his daughter, Mary. He agreed to file a homestead claim on the area, which he later deeded to the South Dakota Mining Company. Now, I just wanted to talk briefly about his son, Alvin McDonald, because the cave tour guides always talk about Alvin and how he mapped so much of Wind Cave National Park. Yeah, they talk to us about that a lot, but they never mention Elmer. No, I don't I, know I, what Elmer was doing at the time. Elmer's like, <laughs> hell no, I'm not going in there. But Alvin McDonald was fascinated with the cave. And when he started exploring, he was 16 years old. Now, just imagine for a minute, in current day, our 16-year-olds were probably worried about them learning to drive and staying out past their curfew. This 16-year-old was going down into this cave by himself with nothing but a candle and some string. Yeah, yeah. And Elmer was probably above ground working on his glue recipe. (laughs) (laughs) Elmer's glue recipe, Matt? Uh Is that what you're saying? (laughs) That is what I'm saying. Just speculating here. Okay. Well, the McDonald family thought that they could make a living from the cave by developing it with bigger passageways and wooden ladders and steps Um, in the hope of attracting travelers from nearby hot springs. They're hoping that it's going to be a tourist destination. This is so fun. Who else wants to go in the (laughs) hole with me? This dark hole. (laughs) So Alvin himself explored about 8 to 10 miles of passageways, which is amazing. That is amazing. He kept a journal in which he described his exploration of the cave, and he named a lot of the rooms and passageways. As I said, he explored the cave with candlelight, and he rolled out strings so he could find his way back out of the cave when he was ready to turn around. Um, He became what he called the chief guide at Wind Cave. So he literally spent hours every day for more than three years exploring and guiding within Wind Cave. They told us a story when we did the tour that um, one time the string broke and he had to leave his... (laughs) guiding clients in the hole overnight. Alvin made it out, went home, went to bed, woke up the next morning, went and and found his clients. Yeah, I I would have liked to have been there. And the thing is, too, if any of you have been on a cave tour, what the guides like to do is extinguish the lights that are in the cave so that we have a sense of what total darkness it is down there. And when you sit in the darkness of that cave and you literally cannot see you know, your hand in front of your face, and you get a sense of the true and absolute darkness down there. That's right. And you have plenty of time to think about what you're going to do to Alvin when he, <laughs> when he, he ever comes, comes back. back. for you. Right. Sadly, at the end of 1893, Alvin died of typhoid fever. He was only 20 years old. Now he is buried near the entrance to the cave. There's a bronze plaque on a stone marker that marks his grave. It is accessible by a little path and a short climb up the hill above the natural entrance to Wind Cave. One last note about Alvin. 
it is assumed that there are still areas of Wind Cave that Alvin explored, but that no one else has ever visited since then, because occasionally pieces of his string are discovered by survey teams in Wind Cave. And as recently as 2009, Alvin's signature was discovered carved into the ceiling of a room in the cave where it had been assumed no person had ever visited before. So just imagine if you're this cave explorer and you're going down a new, brand new passageway that you think has never been explored before and you shine the light and there is Alvin's name carved on the ceiling. Yeah, I wonder if they find any of his old guiding clients down there because he had... He had a tendency to leave them behind. No humans, just his signature and some string. All right, so fast forward to 1892. The McDonald's began looking for a partner to help them build their tourism business. So John Stabler saw the financial value of the cave, and he bought an interest in what is called the Wonderful Wind Cave Improvement Company. His son and daughter helped lead tours and explore the cave, And John knew that Hot Springs was a popular tourist destination and money could be made by bringing people from Hot Springs into the cave. So they invited a lot of famous people to the cave, including the governor of South Dakota. And these visits were advertised in the local newspaper to bring attention to the cave. So they even built a hotel near the entrance to Wind Cave to accommodate visitors. It was basically, I saw a photo, it was basically on top of where that natural entrance is. Right, so you didn't have to go far. You did not have to go far. And an excursion to the cave also included a stagecoach ride to and from the cave from Hot Springs and a meal at the hotel. Uh, Because, you know, at the time, Matt, there were no park roads. It's not even a national park. So people are coming by horse and buggy or stagecoach to the cave. So upon arriving, visitors were given a candle, they entered the cave through a trap door, and then they descended a series of ladders to begin their adventure. So here's a candle, and there's the trap door. (laughs) And they're paying money for this. 50 cents. 50 cents. (laughs) Which back then was probably quite a bit of money. I don't know what the equivalent is. I'll have to look that up. Uh, Yeah. No, that's like $10,000 today. Now, unfortunately, as the years progressed, a lot of infighting was happening between the Stablers and the McDonald's as to who owns the cave. And there were lawsuits. And in 1900, the Department of the Interior announced that the Secretary of the Interior decided that neither party is entitled to this land and that this land shall be held in reserve until Congress could have the opportunity to create a permanent reservation there. They were calling these places reservations. Uh, And then in 1903, President Teddy Roosevelt declared Wind Cave a national park, our seventh national park, and the first national park in the world created specifically to protect a cave. That's fascinating. We're we're now 120 years from today. So <laughs> <laughs> I like it when you when you fast forwarded to 1893. <laughs> when, you, when you're fast forwarding to 1893, you know it's going to be a, a long day. So all right. So. <laughs> Okay, so that was 120 years ago. Right. So while all this is going on, Jewel Cave had a little bit later of a start in being discovered. It was discovered in 1900 by Frank and Albert Michaud. 
They described the entrance as a hole that was too small for human entry with a blast of cold air coming out. So basically, they discovered it the same way that Wind Cave was discovered. They enlarged the hole with dynamite, entered the cave, discovering crawlways and low ceiling rooms coated with beautiful crystals that sparkled like jewels in their lantern light. So in 1902, they constructed a trail within the cave. They built a lodge up on the rim of Hell Canyon, which unfortunately is no longer there. And they even organized the Jewel Cave Dancing Club in 1902 to attract tourists. However, there was a lack of people living in the region at the time. And because of the difficulty of traveling to the cave, this uh, tourist venture of theirs was, was kind of a flop. Yeah, and they were also competing with the other hole in the ground 20 miles away. Right. So, yeah, people Uh, had choice of which hole in the ground to go into. Right. Although Wind Cave did not have dancing. (laughs) That's Yeah, you got to offer something different. Okay, so in 1908, a local movement to set Jewel Cave aside for preservation ended in the proclamation of the cave as a national monument, also, again, by President Teddy Roosevelt. And the Michaud brothers sold their claim to the government for about $750. Yeah, it's a billion dollars in today's right. dollars. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. So okay. what, what have, anything in this sanctuary? Yes. So now we have Wind Cave National Park and we have Jewel Cave National Monument. All right. Both of those are established. However, in 1912, Congress established a 4,000-acre Wind Cave National Game Preserve to begin bringing bison back to the area. We have talked about this before. This was the time when they were threatened by all the changes on the Great Plains. They were almost extinct at this point. And so this preserve was to be administered under the Department of Agriculture, and it was on land within and adjacent to Wind Cave National Park. So then in 1913, the American Bison Society sent 14 bison from the New York Zoological Gardens. An additional six bison were sent in 1916 from Yellowstone. And it's from these bison that the Wind Cave herd is descended from. That is fascinating. Yes. So both in Jewel Cave and Wind Cave in the 1930s, the CCC came into both parks. In Wind Cave, the CCC crews built the elevator shaft down into the cave. They installed electricity and built concrete stairways. And in Jewel Cave, they developed a stone stairway to the cave entrance and walking trails and all kinds of things. So the CCC played a tremendous role in both parks. So one last note about Jewel Cave. In the 1940s and 50s, um, although the cave was remarkable for its beauty, the passageways were very short. There was only one tour and it was about two miles. It just had not been explored and developed yet. But in 1959, husband and wife rock climbing enthusiasts Herb and Jan Kahn began exploring and mapping new passageways. So over the next 21 years, they spent 12 to 14 hour days exploring the caves and they added an additional 64 miles of passageways. And in 1980, they retired from their adventures mapping the site. But they said, we are still standing on the threshold. And I think that's one of the things that I love about these caves is that they're both considered They're both considered the final frontiers on Earth because there is so much that is unmapped and unexplored in these areas. Yeah, they're, like we said earlier in the episode, 
they know from measuring the amount of wind coming in and out of these places that there's a lot left down there that they haven't discovered. Right. So that's pretty cool. It is. It's very cool. So, you know, we'll see as the years go by how many more miles are discovered and if there are any more fascinating things to find down in these caves. But um, I think it's wonderful that they are not finished yet. In fact, they are just on uh, kind of the very beginning of the journey. So, Karen, if people were to ask us, getting back to the question you posed earlier in the episode, if you only had time to do one, which one would you visit? Yeah, that is a tough one. If you have the time, you should absolutely see both of them. You know, because they're not that far apart, you could do a cave tour in one of them in the morning, go to Custer, the town of Custer, have lunch, and then do the other one in the afternoon. That would be ideal. But if you can only do one, I think one thing to consider is that if you are claustrophobic at all, Wind Cave might not be the best choice. I would choose Jewel Cave then. But, you know, I thought both of them had just fascinating aspects. Yeah, I don't think you can go wrong uh, choosing either. Uh, Jewel Cave, certainly there's there are more formations to see down there. But Whichever one you choose, you don't want to miss driving through Wind Cave National Park to see the bison. Absolutely. And Wind Cave, as far as the land goes, is much, much bigger. The Wind Cave National Park has about 34,000 acres compared to Jewel Cave's about 1,200 acres. And Wind Cave has over 30 miles of hiking trails and, of course, bison everywhere. And we saw on this last visit, we saw bison all over the place, and they were right by the road. It was a good bison viewing day. It was a great bison viewing day. It's not always like that. No, we have been through Wind Cave before. Other times we have just driven through and not done a cave tour. And there have been times we haven't seen any bison. And it's home to not just bison, but elk antelope, deer, prairie dogs, and black-footed ferrets. That I think that's my favorite ferret species. Oh, is it the black-footed yeah, the black-footed, ones? yeah. You know what was really cool? Uh, just side note, we saw all kinds of baby prairie dogs, didn't we? We did. Tiny, tiny little babies. Yeah, yeah. Those black-footed ferrets need, need good offspring. They need like one black-footed ferret needs an acre of prairie dogs per ferret to survive. <laughs> so are you suggesting that this is going to be their meal after I had... Yeah, they're a food source. Oh, the prairie dogs okay. aren't. Don't, let's not ruin it. <laughs> I mean, the ferrets have to eat too. So if you go this summer, we just wanted to send a shout out to our new friend, Jacob, who is a seasonal ranger there. He's an intern this summer. So Jacob goes to school at the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology in Rapid City. He's majoring in geological engineering, and he is working there this summer as a tour guide. He reached out to us after listening to our podcast and reading our books and and seeing if we were going to hopefully have a trip there this summer. So we got to meet him. Yeah, we did. And it was great meeting Jacob, seeing his enthusiasm for the park in the area. That's great to have interns that are so enthusiastic and excited about what they're doing. Yes. So if he is your tour guide on your tour this summer, you are very lucky. And please tell him we said hello. All right. That wraps up this episode about wind and jewel caves. Thanks for joining us today. 
And thank you to all of our patrons who've supported us over on our Patreon account and all of you new patrons who have just joined. If you're planning a trip to the Black Hills, check out our episode number 95 called Custer State Park and the Black Hills for information about all the other wonderful things to do and see in the area. See you next week. Thank you.